0: I'm going to invite you to Genesis chapter 9 as we're at together today. Genesis chapter 9, and we're going to be talking about second chances because after a catastrophic flood, when you survive, that's what you talk about, right? Second chances. There's a purpose to your life, and and God wants you to know that purpose, and he is certainly a God of second chances. And and we find him as a God of second chances, really, in how chapter 8 concluded as we get into chapter 9. So at the end of the flood, if you remember, as Noah comes out of the boat, He makes a sacrifice to the Lord, and in verse 21, at the end of chapter 8, it says something interesting about uh, the Lord and his response to humanity. It said, and the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice that Noah made, and he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. And look at this, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood, I will never again destroy all living things. So here's the Lord after the Noahic flood, and I hope you've the pattern to this point but God is reminding us like he's just brought a flood and that's still not even going to correct us like uh, what's wrong with humanity rests within us which is different than we typically describe humanity and culture in our culture we like to say things like well they're good they just kind of do some bad things but the Bible says actually the opposite of that we're bad and anything good good comes out of us it's it's of the grace of God that makes that known our hearts are deceitful and wicked what what our problem is is not just simply our behavior but rather God needs to do a complete transformation within us, so it transforms the life without us, or beyond us, right? And so God is acknowledging that here, that the brokenness in humanity is, doesn't rest in simply our behavior, it's deep within our soul that we need transformation in our heart. And I know some people will look at that and simply say, well, what about you know religious people, religious people, they do good, right? And and I would just say, well, the motivation of the heart on the outside might look good, but, but on the inside determining why they're doing things matters, because what you find oftentimes times is even in religion, the the purpose for which motivates people to do anything is not ultimately about because I just simply want to give God glory, but in the religious system that they operate in, they understand by doing certain things helps them to motivate themselves. So even religion comes with this this motivation purpose of elevating me and getting what I want and simply using God as a a tool or a leverage so I can get ahead and and get to the place that I desire to be. Uh, Even Jesus in, in Matthew chapter five to seven, when he gave the famous sermon on the mount Jesus is speaking to the most religious people on the planet and Jesus is helping them recognize it's not just based on your performance but what rests in your heart and Jesus says you have heard it said you shouldn't murder right and, and yeah you shouldn't murder but he also says he who has had anger in his heart has already committed murder meaning the seed that produces a murder is found in the anger of our own heart and destroying other people so the problem isn't just simply on your behavior and by the way if you haven't murdered today I'm happy you haven't murdered but, but also also, it's to understand that the motivation behind it is, is birthed out of anger and all of us are guilty and Jesus goes on and says you may not have stolen but if you've coveted the, the, the seed of, of uh, being a thief rests within your heart you may not have committed adultery but you've lusted And so Jesus is helping us understand that the brokenness of humanity rests within us. But one of the beautiful things we learn about the character of God here is that his character isn't contingent on what we do. It's based on who he is. And God's going to remain consistent with his character despite humanity. And in that, God provides for us opportunity that out of the chaos that is ourself, God provides a place to continue to experience his grace. He is a God of second chances. Uh, another verse to consider is uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine, where it tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And it's, it's saying in Jeremiah 17 that we even surprise ourselves at the de- depth of our own depravity that we need the grace of God in order for our lives to, to be transformed. And in this passage, God is bringing us to that place of reset, a place to kind of wake us up. Uh, it was the, the, the great philosopher and theologian Mike Tyson that once said, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth, right? <laughs> and then it's out the window, and you got to rethink it. And, and, and this is where we're at in this passage of Scripture, to help us understand the, the, the problem within our own heart, that we can approach God uh, with a, a proper understanding of of who we are in light of who he is. And one of the things that gives us that beautiful privilege is to know God is a personal God. One of the the beauties of Christianity is to see how personal our God is. It really sets him apart from any other religious teaching in this world. And in Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, this is where God starts with Noah. And he says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You would recognize in this passage, God is going all the way back to really the beginning of Genesis chapter one to retell the story of why we were made and the opportunity of second chances that out of chaos, God would bring his grace and order to our world that despite what's happening around us, we can still pursue God and honor him and, and the life that we lead. And God didn't owe anything to us, but yet he's given us that opportunity to do it. And he demonstrates it through this word, bless. God blessed Noah. Th- this idea of blessing continues to speak to a personal God. Right? The reason we have scripture today is God desires to make himself known, that you may know him and walk with him in relationship. And this was demonstrated by God from the beginning in the Garden of Eden. In, in Genesis chapter 1, he creates with a purpose, and-, and we find that divine design in humanity when he creates us to know him in relationship God made us in his image unique than any other creature God has designed. He has made you for a relationship with him. And and even and being made in relationship while mankind rejected God over and over, God continued to pursue us from the first sin in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. God didn't give up on Adam and Eve when they ran away. God pursued Adam and Eve. And God continues, we see, throughout these chapters of Genesis uh, to pursue us that we may walk with Him in relationship to the point when you get to the the New Testament, we see that God becomes flesh and dwells among us. It tells us in in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. That the word of God, who is Jesus, uh, becomes flesh and dwells among us, and we behold his glory. In fact, in Colossians 2, 9, it tells us the fullness of God dwells in Jesus in bodily form. Meaning, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, because Jesus is God in the flesh. And in seeing God in the flesh, it's, again, God connecting to us personally, that we can know Him, see Him, and, and not, not just know Him personally, but also we see how God, uh, God gives His life for us, that we can find freedom from our sin and be able to enjoy that relationship with God for all of eternity. God is a, is a personal God. And another way God desires to make Himself personally known is through humanity. And and what I mean is you being made in the image of God become the expression, the reflection of God in this world. That is, God has made you in his image. He's given you character qualities to reflect the goodness of who he is. And when you align your life with the Lord, you get the privilege to to do that, to to live in light of that and respond in this world, to bless this world, not to destroy this world. In fact, in, in Genesis 9, verse 2 and 3, we're reminded of the strength of humanity. That in your strength, you're made dangerous, but what you do with that determines whether that danger is for good or for evil. In in Genesis 9-2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea, Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything." This is where you get to the end of this verse, and you thank the Lord for bacon and tacos, right? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for this delicious food. But here's here's what he wants us to recognize in in choosing to respond in second chances. Point number one in your notes. Consider your relationship with creation. You see in in verse 2, it's reminding us now that, that the beasts of the field have this fear of humanity. That God has called us to be fruitful and multiply and, and care for this world. But the beasts in the field had this, this fear of humanity, and it's not misplaced. It's to understand that human beings left unto themselves when they live for their glory, they tend to treat other things like tools, whether it be other human beings or uh, uh, other things in creation. We use things as tools for our glory apart from God. But when we connect ourselves to the Lord, we, we respond by, by living for God's glory in this world to the benefit of others. And so, this idea of, of these living beings is a reflection that God has made you strong, and in being strong, you're made dangerous. And how you choose to respond in that is a demonstration of what you're honoring, whether it be for yourself to the detriment of all other created things, or it be for God's glory to the to the blessing of of others. And in terms of these animals, as it's describing, it seems like in this passage he's he's painting this dominance of huma- humanity over over the rest of creation and, and the animals to their destruction. But what you find as you read throughout the rest of this passage, is not to dominate and destroy, but rather to bless and to live. And, and you see this communicated to you in, in verse 9 and 10, verse 12, verse 13, verse 16. I, I want to look at it for just a moment. But it says to us in verse 9 regarding, regarding the rest of creation, that God's desire is for us to consider our relationship to, to the rest of creation. And in verse 9, he says, Behold, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you. And I know this isn't on the screen, but listen to this again in verse 12. To all of creation, God says, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. He, he goes on in, in this passage in verse 13. He says, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and all of the earth. In verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will set it and remember that everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God's desire out of the brokenness and the sinful curse that is on this world is that you be a reflection of his glory, to understand your place in creation, to honor God, and to connect personal creator God to the world around you. You become the stand between between heaven and earth when you understand your relationship with the Lord. And God is saying in this passage He desires to make a, a covenant which we'll deal with in a minute, but through that covenant, it's not just humanity that's blessed, but rather all of, of creation God desires to bless. In fact, even in the New Testament, in in the book of Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this. He says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom, the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Um, I, I happen to think God did a wonderful job in creating our world. It is a beautiful world that we live in. I mean, you get to look at the mountains every day. It's like a postcard, isn't it? You just wake up and look outside. It's a beautiful sight. And then to think, and this creation, as beautiful as it is, is under a curse. But he, he acknowledges that creation groans under this curse, that creation itself knows that this wasn't all it was intended for, that there needs to be freedom to creation. And he acknowledges in verse 23, so we as human beings, we groan within our being because we, while we enjoy the life that we've been given, the grace of God to us, that this isn't all that you were made for. I think our deepest of groanings happens in death, that we, without even having to tell another human being that y- your life matters and that life matters. In death we grieve deeply because we know we were made for more. But he he also says something interesting in this passage. He says that you're the first fruits of the Spirit, which means it's acknowledging what Jesus has done for us in his first coming so that we live for his glory until he returns for his second coming. What it means in, in being the first fruits is that you're the first fruits of the promise of the resurrection, that in Jesus's first coming, he gave his life on your behalf that you could find freedom in Christ. And in so doing, the the Bible promises us you've been sealed for adoption in Ephesians 1. You've been sealed by the Spirit of God. And that Spirit of God is a promise and a guarantee that you will enter into eternity in relationship with the Lord, that you will be with Him face to face forever. And so the Spirit of God brings us freedom until the return of Christ when He redeems all of creation. And in his second coming, Jesus is bringing judgment over all of sin as he renews all of creation. The importance of his first coming was to bring you freedom from that judgment because if God came in his second coming without offering you freedom in the first coming, you would have been caught in the judgment of God. But by coming to the cross and giving his life for you, you have the promise of the first fruits because the spirit of God gives you freedom in Jesus for those who turn to to Christ. And in that position now, it gives you this place between heaven and earth to reflect the goodness of who God is this God who has made himself known personally, to be a blessing because of, of your relationship with Christ. So, number one, he wants you to consider your relationship with creation. And number two, he wants you to consider your relationship with humanity. Consider your relationship with humanity. And verse four, he goes on and says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Let me stop right there for a minute and say this. Um, If you remember in these passages, uh, in Genesis particularly, these stories are being shared during the days of Moses. And Moses has seen how from Noah till, till his time, how things have transpired. And one of the things that has transpired is this pagan idea of worship through, through the, the stealing of blood of other life forms. And what I mean is it it was thought and and even still practiced today, believe it or not in in the world, Um, people, people think in a broken system of pagan worship that by partaking of the blood of another living creature, you steal its power, you get its life force. And so what Noah is talking about here in the idea of the Lord and Moses is recording for us in scriptures, they have this thought that if they take the lifeblood of another animal and drink its blood, they'll get the power of that animal. It'll become theirs. And then he moves on not just from animals, but he also moves on to other human beings. That, that there is this belief that if they steal the blood from other human beings that they get to capture its life force because they recognize—I know science hadn't developed far enough in the medical field that, these days, but they recognize that when something lost too much blood, that it would die. And then the thought came, well, if we take their blood then, and that make, make it our blood, then it becomes our strength and we rob them of their strength and we use their life for our glory. And so they're, they're leveraging their position of how God has created them. Rather than honor God, they're honoring themselves to the destruction of others. And God is reminding us that he creates life sacredly and with purpose. I know it told us in verse 2 and 3, you're welcome to eat animals, right? I think we live in the most... I don't know if you want to call it privilege, but opportunity in in history where you get more of a meat in your diet regularly than most people that have have ever existed. In in Noah's day, Moses' day, animals were looked at as the source to sustain life. You got clothing from animals, you got uh, nutrients from animals, milk from animals. They would sometimes eat animals, but not near what we did today. If an animal died or was sacrificed, it's typically when they feasted on meat, but it wasn't in every meal. But he also reminds us the beauty of life, that God has made life for a purpose and not just simply to to rob life. And and particularly he gets to human life because every human being is made in the image of God. And, And to depreciate human life or to take from human life is to attack creator God who has made everyone in his image. It's an affront to the Lord. But rather, God is saying he wants us to guard the sacredness of life. In fact, some people go to this passage as saying this is the first passage in Scripture where really God has allowed human government to step in for the preservation of life to take life if someone is killing other people. And what I mean is this passage is saying to us, look, killing is not wrong, but rather murder is and if you have someone that becomes a murderer taking other, other people's lives, then in order to protect life, the removing of that life is a privilege given to government for, for, for protection. And so the right to defend yourself in our constitution is, is birthed out of passages like this because life is sacred and we want to preserve life and honor life because the value of your life is not merited by your behavior, but intrinsically given to you by your creator. You matter because you're made in the image of God. It doesn't matter where you've come from and what you've done and what other people have done to you to to shape yourself in his identity. God has a purpose for your life. And and you see that honored in, in this book written by Moses, who's working with slaves who have been treated like tools, who have been de- devalued and only seen as based on what they can do, not in who they are. But God steps into the, the difficulty of that circumstance and reminds them of the beauty of humanity being made in the image of God purposefully, intentionally to connect to Creator God and bless others. And so it reminds us in this passage of that sacredness of life and how you choose to respond to it matters in the Lord. In fact, in verse 7, it goes on a little further and says, And you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Again, God is repeating the same thing he said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 22 and verse 28. That we're not made just to not kill people, right? I mean, you get to the end of verse 6, and that could be your conclusion. I'm pretty good. I haven't murdered, right? Like, you might get to the end of verse 6 and, and, and think, life is about what you're not doing. And rather, he's saying, no, it's, it's not just about not killing people. It's not just about not depreciating the, the value of another human being, but rather it's about stepping into the purpose for which God has created you. To live that out in this world for his glory to the benefit of others. To be fruitful, multiply, and bless. That as you're connected to the Lord so you can live it out for that purpose, right? Understand who you are in creation and understand who you are in humanity. You know, as a pastor, I get the beautiful privilege of walking life with people and just hearing your stories and, and how you got to where you are today and how the hand of God's grace has been in your life. And as I hear those stories, sometimes I hear um, very dark stories of where God has brought you through. And I don't just mean things that you've done. I mean things that people may have done to you. And how devastating that can be to the soul, to, the, to, the, to walk through those things. I mean, some, some stories I know within our body are so difficult, I, I have a hard time even hearing it, let alone knowing someone else lived through it. But can I remind you, God is a God of, of beauty from ashes. This is why this, this story of, of Genesis is about, that out of the chaos of creation, out of the darkness of human hearts, that God continues to extend a place of grace. And to focus on not what happened to you, but rather what, what, what God has done for you in him. To not let your life be shaped about through your past, but rather let your life be shaped through your future and what you have in Jesus. I know every once in a while, uh, some things happen to us and we get to that place where we want to prove people wrong. And we have this chip on our shoulders and we say to people, look, I'm going to show you. And, you know, I think sometimes extra motivation can be great. But, but can I tell you that if, if we just simply respond in life with just a chip on our shoulders to prove other people wrong, we're still demonstrating to them that they have rent in our heads. Brother, can I tell you what Jesus wants to do in your life and for your life is far better? And, and what, I, what I mean by that is it, it is not wrong to call police or authorities if something bad has happened to you. That's why they're there. But, but what I also want us to recognize is the things that happen to us do not define us, but rather they can refine us in our position in Christ. That what happens to us in our life, Jesus is completely aware. He knows of every pain and every struggle we've gone through. And what God promises to do for us in redeeming all things on our behalf, God, what God promises and will do is far better than anything we're going to do in our own strength. And what I mean is you carrying your anger and frustration and vengeance, it won't, won't even pale in comparison to what God will ultimately do when he brings justice to this earth. And you have the beautiful privilege of resting in the Lord, not living your life with a chip on your shoulders, but simply saying, and I've been completely freed in Jesus to walk in him. And he doesn't find my value based on what's happened to me, but based on who I am and in my identity through Christ. In in fact, point number three in your notes, uh, goes further and it says this, consider your relationship with God. Consider your relationship with God. Meaning... If you're going to recognize your place to bless this earth, as far as creation goes, and be a blessing to humanity in relationship to one another, it has to spur out of your relationship with Christ. The motivation behind that is not about meriting God's love, but rather receiving who you are in Christ through His love. You're not meriting God's favor, but relying on the consistency of His character. And Genesis 9 becomes uh, that place in verse 8 uh, of recognizing the goodness of who God is through this word called covenant. This is the first time in Scripture we're introduced directly to this word covenant. Uh, But the idea of, of covenant becomes important to understand your position in relationship to your Creator. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, God is, is bringing this covenant, and this is not the first time you're going to see the word covenant discussed in Scripture. There are multiple times the word covenant is used. Some people say, well, the, the idea of covenant really began with Adam and Eve when God established a covenant with them. And, and, and for, for this reason, God doesn't owe us anything. But he still gave Adam and Eve the, the opportunity to know him, and then he promised after Adam and Eve sinned that opportunity again to continue to know him despite their sin in Genesis 3.15. And then you come to the story of Noah, and the word covenant is used directly. Uh, you get to the life of Abraham, which we'll read in a few chapters, where God establishes a covenant with Abraham. Uh, you, you see it uh, repeated again with Moses and with David, and finally you get to the New Testament where you find the new covenant with Christ, where in the night Jesus was betrayed in Luke 22, verse 20 he says, uh, take this. This is my body on behalf of you. Do this in remembrance of me. And also with the cup, this is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. The idea of covenant important to your relationship in Christ. The idea of of covenant is is contrasted to the thought of of contract, which is typically how we work in agreements today. In in contracts, if you ever are part of a contract, there's two parties, they both agree to, to give a certain amount in the contractual agreement, and if one person fails to give, the other person's not obligated. Contract broken. But in this picture of covenant, the idea of covenant is fully giving of yourself to the benefit of someone else. This, this covenant is leveraging your life uh, to help someone else. The idea of covenant is grace-filled. In fact, looking at Noah, God owed nothing to Noah. Yet God chose to provide this covenant of hope to Noah that Noah could have the, the promise of his position in the Lord and walk freely in it. This idea of covenant gives identity, it gives security, and it gives position in the Lord. And it's not based on what you do, it's based on who he is. In fact, uh, there's a, a children's storybook Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I've read this, this Bible a few times to all of my kids. It's a, if you if you've, you're reading the Bible for the first time, or maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you're like, man, the Bible still confuses me. Can I just tell you, read the Jesus Storybook Bible. I mean, that is a great place to start. It ties the theme of scripture together. And if you're embarrassed to read a children's Bible, then find a kid to read it to. Okay. But, but it's a, it's a good Bible to understand the big picture of what God desires. And in this Bible, it repeats the idea of covenant love over and over. In fact, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote the storybook Bible, and and she recognized the importance of covenant love to our relationship with God. And she made it a point to write this this phrase over and over in Scripture. It says this, covenant love is God's never-ending, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Let me just say that again, because I think it's worth, it's worth understanding that if you're here this morning and you feel like you're just fighting for God's love, or if you're trying to just do your best so that God would care about you, can I, can I just tell you, you don't understand covenant love. You don't understand what Jesus has already done on your behalf. Jesus has paid it all. Not that you have to merit anything, but you you receive rather what he has given. The Bible tells us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places given to you in Ephesians through Christ. Now, when you understand that kind of love, the response of your heart is not about meriting anything from the Lord, but rather walking in it. And you realize he's a God of second chances over and over again. A covenant love is God's never ending, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And it's through that love then that we commonly as people create symbols. Symbols are signs to remind us. It's it's good for your soul to find those sort of staples or monuments. A place to go back and reflect upon because hard days will come. There there may be things that have happened to you in your life and you let the lie of those moments speak into your heart rather than the truth of who God is. And you'll walk in those lies rather than let the unending love of God be what's spoken over you. And in in Genesis 9, verse 12, this is what happens in the story of Noah. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud. And this shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all the flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Like, I, I know I can say this jokingly, but could you imagine being Noah the second time it rained? Like, if you talk about PTSD, right, that's, that's going to be one of those moments. But, but what does Noah get in the midst of the darkness of the cloud? he's reminded of the goodness of God. That's the beauty of a symbol of a covenant. We typically don't think about it until things are hard. And then when things are hard, we want our soul to be reminded of the richness of who God is. And and we do this with covenant symbols as human beings, right? Marriage being a a covenant of, of marriage. We typically use a ring as a symbol of unending love because a circle never ends. That's a covenant. Um, In in terms of the the Old Testament, uh, Moses was circumcised, or Abraham, excuse me, was circumcised, and again Moses, and it continued on, right? It's a sign of the covenant. It's a reminder in the intimacy of who you are as a human being, the presence of God. In the New Testament, we, we don't have to do circumcision anymore. In the New Testament, there's the communion, right? And communion is a symbol of the new covenant that Jesus has for us. It reminds us of the intimacy that we have with the Lord. And the only reason we get to be here today is not because anyone merited anything from God. You, you, don't, you don't even have that ability. But rather, we get the joy of resting in a new identity that we receive, not based on what we achieve, but what he achieved for us. New covenant of his blood, this unending, this unending love of the Lord. In fact, in Psalm 26, 3, I love how it says this. It says, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I love that steadfast love is this is recognizing a love that cannot be pushed over or knocked down it remains consistent in every storm and then it says you want to know how you walk forward it's not because of your faithfulness because no one (laughs) you can't trust in that very far you'll sin but rather it's in the faithfulness of God it's the consistency of who he is that even gives you the privilege to breathe today and know your creator and and through that then honor others and all of creation that the only reason we're able to do anything related to these first two points is because of everything God is in this last point. And understanding who he is, then it gives us the, the privilege to, to be able to move forward in the Lord. And ultimately, when you think in terms of the sign of the covenant, like if we say to ourselves, okay, Noah got, Noah got the, the, the uh, rainbow and Moses and, and what, what do we have? And for us, it's the cross of Christ. In the darkest of hours, in the depth of our soul, what we need to be reminded of is what Jesus did for us in a very personal way that we can find freedom in him. And it wasn't because of anything that I've done righteously, but rather the only thing I did for for the freedom is doing the sinning, right? I did the sinning that led Jesus to the cross. But in the cross, there is the consistent, steadfast love Faithful, and it's made known throughout all of history. From the story of Genesis up until that moment, Jesus had promised that he was coming, and he was coming. And I love even in the gospels when you read the life of Christ and those final days of Jesus' life, when he's journeying to Jerusalem, it describes in the gospels that the rest of the disciples follow, but at a safe distance. <laughs> They're like, uh, We know what's gonna happen here, right? Like, we don't wanna be near him, but we just wanna kinda stand in the back and cheer him on. But Jesus boldly, boldly walks into Jerusalem. Why? For you and for me. Steadfast, faithful love. It's that love that leads, that leads us to respond. It's not because we love God, therefore he loves us. But rather in 1 John 4, 19, it says, because he loved us, we love him. It's that love that motivates our soul to respond for his glory in this world because we know in him we don't compete for our worth, but rather we discover it. Secure identity in Jesus. And this challenges our motivation. Remember I said in the beginning, sometimes we think, what about religious people? Are religious people good? And they look, they're certainly doing good, but Jesus taught us something completely different in the Sermon on the Mount because what needs fixed isn't our behavior, but rather our heart. And if our hearts transform, so goes our, our life. And even our motivation, though it may look good, on the inside, we know whether or not it's for our own glory or His. Which reminds me of the story. I'll, I'll share this in one final verse and close. But there was a, uh, Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a, of a farmer and a rancher. And the farmer obviously grew carrots, and the rancher obviously bred some horses. But to one day, this farmer, he's walking out on his farm and and he recognizes uh, within this, the field, there is this massive, incredible carrot. The farmer thought, wow, I've never seen or grown a carrot like this before. This is incredible. And so he thought to himself, you know, I really want to give this away as a gift to bless someone that's been a blessing to me. And so immediately the farmer thought, wow, I think I should give this to the king. The king has been a great king. This is a gift only a king is worthy of. So I want to take it to the king. So the farmer did. He went to the king and he just wanted to honor the king because the king had been such a blessing to him. Out of, out of love of experiencing the blessing of that king, he just wanted to respond back with love towards him. And the king took the gift from the farmer and looked at him and said, farmer, this is incredible. Wouldn't you know it? I just happen to own a plot of land beside you and I'm not doing anything with it. I also want to give you this plot of land in response. And I want you to take that plot of land and continue to be the incredible farmer that God made you to be. And the farmer's blown away. just wanted to give a carrot. And now here he is walking away with the plot of land. But in that room, there was another individual overhearing the conversation, and it was the rancher. And the rancher thought to himself, hmm, the, the farmer got more land. I know what I'll do. And so the next day, the rancher shows up with his prized horse. And he comes to the king, and he says to the king, King, out of all the horses I've ever bred and all the horses I've ever raised, this is the greatest horse I have ever owned. And you being a great king, I want to gift you this horse. And, and the, the king looked back at the rancher, and he realized what the rancher was doing because he knew the rancher was present with his conversation with the farmer the day before. So the king looked at the rancher, and he just grabbed the horse and said, Thank you. And he just walks away. The rancher is obviously a little frustrated to lose his prize horse and starts to say something to the king, in which the king then turns back to the rancher and says, do you know why I didn't give you anything in response? He said, yesterday, the farmer gave me the carrot to honor me, but you're just giving me the horse to honor yourself. Whose glory do you live for? The idea of the story of, of Genesis chapter 9 is to remind us of the covenant grace of God that we have the privilege of walking in for His glory, not our own. Because what we have in the Lord is far greater than anything you could ever achieve in your own effort. But to rest in that identity and to walk in the goodness of His hand. In fact... The rest of Genesis, and I just have to give you a summary of this, but if you look at the, the latter half of this story, you'll find that out of Noah, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But remember, it, we're, we're, we're telling the story during the days of Moses, and Moses has seen how out of the lineage of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the goodness of God was made known or the sinfulness of man. And what you find in the story is right after the Noahic flood, Noah decides he's going to build a vineyard, get drunk, he gets drunk, he gets naked. I don't, I don't <laughs> That's what happens in the story. I guess your Bible heroes have bad, bad flaws within them too, right? Noah, he follows the Lord in righteousness, and then all of a sudden he gets drunk and he's asleep and naked in the tent. All of a sudden his son Ham comes into the tent. You don't really know what happens in the story. You can just kind of speculate what happens, but whatever happens the next day, Noah wakes up ticked, or right? he's hangover and ticked. That's how he wakes up, and he he comes and he talks to his three sons, and what you find in these three sons is um, Ham is cursed, and Shem and Japheth are blessed. And I I think that this this story of Shem, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth is a reminder of what happens to these three individuals as they move from this story, one choosing to not walk with the Lord, and the other choosing at some points to walk with God. But during Moses' day now, as the story is being told, out of the line of Ham comes the Canaanites. The Babylonians, uh, the, the Philistines, uh, S- Sodom and Gomorrah. This becomes a, a civilization that were nothing but a thorn into the sides of Israel. And the mark of their life was one of being cursed because they walked a life contrary to the Lord. This doesn't mean every, every Canaanite or anyone that comes out of Ham was necessarily cursed, but rather they represented the eyes of cursing. Because they choose to follow a path that wasn't in connection to the Lord and his covenant grace. And Shem becomes the lineage of, of Jesus. And the story is being told in the time of Moses now that all these generations have transpired as a way to say Israel uh, to Israel, and what you do from this day forward matters. It matters not only to you, but it matters to creation. It matters to the people around you. It matters to the generations that follow after you. The way you honor the Lord with your life can be a blessing or it can be a cursing. And it all is discovered in how you root yourself in the identity of his covenant of grace, not based on what you do, but what he's done for you. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.